The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So to start, I thought I would just share a favorite little poem of mine for this time of year. It's called um, Autumn by Rilke. As from the distance leaves are falling, fall as if the far-off gardens fade into the sky. They fall with gestures of relinquishing. And through the night there falls the pressing earth down past the star in lonesomeness. We are all falling. There this hand falls too, occurring to us all. Just look around you. Still there is one who holds us tenderly. And in those hands we fall, fall endlessly. So I was asked to uh, come and talk um, about suffering. You know, the stress that we all share living here as human beings, fragile and vulnerable. In this world that is just full of beauty, but also full of violence and death and destruction. And to also just talk uh, about my work as a chaplain, a, a spiritual caregiver in a big city hospital, um, San Francisco General, I, I often tell people, is a sea of suffering. It's a sea of suffering. And talk about that, <clears throat> how that suffering um, inspires me and informs me in the work that I do. So, first of all, as Buddhists, we, um, we always turn. We turn towards the suffering. First in ourselves, that's the practice. And, and then, and this comes as a kind of a natural, instinctive response as our practice deepens, we turn towards others. We turn to those around us who are suffering. And so the first noble truth is that there is suffering. And, you know, that's why we're all here, because we know this. We know the reality of this. And um, as Chris mentioned in her talk, um, it's useful to make this distinction between the pain in life, which we um, all experience, because we have these bodies, and we have these hearts, and, um, you know, um, things come into our life, and then they pass away, and eventually that's what happens to us. So, um, so this is the reality, the pain of life, and the suffering is optional. The suffering, as Chris explained, is what we add, what we add to that. You know, with um, our resistance, um, our feelings that this shouldn't be happening to me, or this shouldn't be happening to my son, or this, you know, um, this isn't right, uh, or, you know, I must have done something wrong to deserve this, or it's your fault that I'm suffering. You know, that's, that's the stuff that we add to the pain. 
And, you know, in the hospital, I see um, a lot of, you know, a lot of people reacting to their suffering because they're, they're aging and they're sick and they're dying. And I can see the suffering in their resistance to what's happening, their denial of what's happening, um, their, their attempts to ignore um, the realities um, that, uh, you know, that these bodies don't hold up forever, you know. And there is pain in life. So I try to work with them in um, what they're um, adding to the pain. So, you know, the four noble truths that there is suffering and the second noble truth that the Buddha identified the cause of suffering, which is this resistance or this wanting for things to be other than what they are. And then the third noble truth um, that it is possible. We all have the resources, inner resources, um, to um, become free from suffering. And then he laid out the path, starting with this right view. You know, in, in Buddhism, you know, we have all these lists, um, right? We have the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path, the Seven Factors of Awakening, the Ten Perfections, and some people are like, I'll never, never learn them all. And, uh, you know, um, but really, it's as simple as, and I'd like to give this, I'd like to give this example from my life, um, I, I do a lot of hiking in Edgewood Park, which is near here. And years ago, it became overrun with this um, plant called the star thistle. And um, if you've had any run-ins with the star thistle, it causes a lot of pain. <laughs> I once had one impaled right through my running shoe and my toe. It's very nasty. And so the park um, undertook this effort, and it's not a native. It came from, I think, Australia, or I don't know exactly where it came from, but it's not native. So there was a whole crew of people who went through the whole park, and they dug up every star thistle until there were no star thistles left in Edgewood Park. And, um, you know, I just found this to be amazing. Well, then a couple years went by, and I'm hiking along, and I see there's a star thistle growing. And I just, I became so angry. It's like, what, how could this be? These people work so hard. The park's been so nice without them. How can this be? And I started to get really worked up. And then I noticed the first noble truth. I'm suffering. <laughs> I'm suffering here. And um, so the second noble truth, I went to the second noble truth and, you know, I saw that my cause, the cause of my suffering was that I wish, was wishing, wanting things to be other than what they are. You know, I mean, this is nature, not, perf not perfection. Um, and then I realized the third noble truth is, you know, um, by letting go, uh, I can stop this feeling in me, this anger and this resistance and just an awful bad feeling. And, um, and of course, the Noble Eightfold Path, my view as a Buddhist practitioner is I want to be free from suffering. So basically I let go and I just came to accept that sometimes 
the world is a painful, prickly place to live, just how it is. So it, just in those few moments, that's how this practice kind of brought me some relief. And you know, the Buddha was sitting with his monks and nuns one day, and um, he picked up a little crumbled earth. And he, he, asked, um, he asked the monks and nuns, which is greater, this crumble of earth or that mountain over there in the distance? And they were like, well, that's, that's simple. Obviously, it's, the mountain is greater than the crumble of earth. And he said, the crumble of earth is the amount of suffering that those who are on the path will experience in life. And that mountain over there represents the suffering of those who don't, who don't have this understanding and this path and this view and this practice. So, you know, there's um, what, what I have experienced through my practice, um, and this is obviously what kind of led to my um, getting involved in spiritual care. You know, when we sit with our, when we sit with things just as they are, and sometimes they're really painful, and we watch for the suffering, and we just, we, we're still, and we're, we're investigating with our mindfulness and accepting, over time, there's a tremendously transformative power to this practice. It's, it deepens us spiritually, and it opens our hearts. It really opens our hearts, first of all, to ourselves. It starts here, right? It starts right here opens our, our, our hearts to ourselves. And then, as I said before, naturally, instinctively, over time, the heart opens to others. So this is the, the first step for me um, in terms of this path that's led to spiritual cares. I came to really um, know and understand my own pain and my own suffering in a very deep way. And you know, the people that I, uh, that I visit and care for in the hospital, they have a sense of this. They have a sense that, um, um, you know, here's a person who seems to have some kind of understanding of what I'm going through because of my own practice with my own suffering. And you know, the word compassion, which we talk about a lot, um, comes from the Latin roots uh, compati, to suffer with. To suffer with. So when I'm visiting people in the hospital, I'm, I'm there right with them. And they have a sense that here's someone who suffered and here's someone who's walking around and who actually has, you know, good spirit and energy. Someone who actually... Um, has met their suffering and survived. I think they find that, um, I think they find that inspiring. Um, and you know, in Buddhism, we have the Bodhisattva of compassion. Have you seen this, um, this figure who, um, is, she um, has a thousand arms, a thousand arms. 
And so I kind of, um, <clears throat> in my view of my work, I kind of look at myself as one of her arms, you know, one of her arms, just stretching out. Um, there was a study, speaking of compassion, there was um, a study that was done, maybe some of you have heard of this, um, some real-time, you know, how they do, uh, they can do real-time brain imaging now and really see what's going on inside the brain. And there was this Tibetan Buddhist monk um, who um, was doing compassion practice, his, his compassion practice. And so they were doing this, um, I think it was basically an MRI. And so what they saw in, was that there were two areas of the monk's brain that were kind of firing or active during his compassion practice. And one area was the one that's associated with the experience of pain. Um, And the other area of the brain that was involved in this um, compassion practice was the one associated with, with very deep happiness and satisfaction. I thought that was fascinating. And the way I understand it is um, that it's evidence, really, real evidence of how deeply satisfying, first of all, deeply satisfying it can be to be with someone and present for someone who is suffering with your heart totally open to that person. And also as evidence... um, that we can see the possibilities, the, tr- the, the transformative power of becoming intimate with our very own suffering and the true happiness, the true happiness that is possible through this Buddhist practice, through um, awakening. And um, that this path to freedom is, you know, within the reach of all of us. We all have the inner resources. And when we start to clear away the brambles and the overgrown trees and bushes and that beautiful story that, um, that Gil told in his talk um, on Right View, clearing that ancient road until we get to the, the palace. So... Um, also, speaking, speaking of Gil, when I was on retreat with Gil a number of years ago, he told a story um, that was really my inspiration, a big inspiration for me in terms of my, um, my turning towards this, this work of spiritual care. And the story goes, um, it's set in a monastery, and in the monastery there are many new young um, novices, monks and nuns, who've just arrived there. And they're all very excited to be um, setting forth on this path. And the abbess um, comes to them in the evening, and she says, now that you're all here, we're going to spend the next few days visiting the, holy, the most holy sites of Buddhism. And um, everyone, you know, they're all really excited. Wow, this is going to be great. The holiest sites of Buddhism. So the next day, they all gather by the gate. And um, 
the abbess comes, and they they walk um, to a uh, a residence where the um, oldest, the very elderly monks and nuns are now living, that they can not, no longer actually live completely independently. So the monks and nuns, the new monks and nuns, spend the day visiting with these elderly, um, uh, elderly monks and nuns, those on the same path. And they come back, and they're told to, to meet again at the gate in the next morning. And um, the next day, they head off in a different direction. And the next day, they head to um, a hospital that cares for, um, for practitioners, monks and nuns who are sick. And so they spend the day um, sitting with, um, with the sick. And the next day, the third day, again, they meet by the gate. And this time, um, the abbess takes them to, um, to a hospice where people um, are actively, monks and nuns are actively dying. And they see this, this one nun who, um, who's very close to death, and she just has this look of just wonderful peace. So, um, so those are the holy sites of Buddhism, right? The, the um, residence for the aging, the hospital for the sick, and the hospice for the dying. And these were, of course, the heavenly messengers that inspired the Buddha to um, leave his palace and go out and search for um, some way to uh, live with these um, painful realities of life, aging, illness, and passing away. And so, um, so that was a big inspiration for me um, to get into this work. And so when I walk into the hospital, I really, I feel like it's um, holy ground. Holy ground. And the other thing that I feel is, of course, there was the fourth holy, uh, fourth heavenly messenger that the Buddha saw, who was the, the mendicant or the monk who was walking through, uh, you know, the town square, which was full. This is in India, which is full of um, busyness and, and hawking, uh, hawking goods and people grabbing things and sick people, um, you know, sick homeless people all around. And you can just picture an Indian city. And he was walking through it just with this peace and serenity. And, of course, the Buddha said, that's what I want. And so in the hospital... Sometimes, you know, uh, San Francisco General has a trauma unit and obviously um, an emergency department, and there are some, a lot of trauma in the city, a lot of terrible things that happen. And so I try to just bring, sometimes that's all I can do, is just bring a presence that's grounded and, and peaceful to, um, to the scene where the, obviously the medical staff is rushing, rushing, and trying to, to take care of people, and families are... Um, you know, grieving and fearful and patients are, you know, struggling. So sometimes I feel like that's, that's the best I can do, just bring a peaceful presence. So um, in, my, in my work, um, you know, Buddhist chaplains are really, we're kind of new on the scene, first of all. It's always, you know, for a long time been kind of the, a realm, the realm of uh, Christian ministers and pastors. And so, um, but there are more and more Buddhists who are getting involved. And 
And really, we are uniquely, I think, uniquely qualified for, um, for this kind of work. Um, not only because our practice is to turn towards the suffering, but also because we come to people um, with no fixed views, no judging. We have cultivated a presence that's open to whatever's happening. Um, so people can, and people sense this, they can trust us, you know, and they can be however they are. You know, I often say to people, when I ask you how you are, I really want to know, how are you? And, you know, people are scared, um, or sad, or angry. And, you know, we're, we're, I'm okay with that. And then I um, actually, I was um, caring for... Um, I'm actually a, the, a member of the palliative care team, so I was caring for um, a man in his 60s who uh, was nearing end of life, and he um, actually had lost both of his legs below the knee um, due to diabetes, and he'd been suffering for a long time. And he had no connections anymore with family, kind of... Um, he kind of blown those up. Um, but anyway... Um, and um, he seemed to be really grateful to, you know, to talk to me and grateful for my presence. And then um, a few days went by, and one of the nurse, the palliative care nurse, said, "Oh, you know, I know this man. I cared for him years ago. He's a registered sex offender." And I, I noticed when I was sitting with him, I was really kind of struggling. I was struggling with my view, my opinion about this reality, if it was a reality, you know? I mean, who knows, really? Who knows what happened in the life of this man? But it was really interesting for me to sit with my... um, a little bit of reactivity and a little bit of resistance to visiting him. Um, But I was aware of that, and through my practice... I worked with it, and I kept going to see him. And he, d- he died, actually, several, several days after that. So, um, of course, as Buddhists, Buddhist chaplains, we're always nurturing skillful means and clear seeing. So that helps us to really see what's going on with people, have some insight into what's going on with people so that we know uh, where to go with them or how to care for them. And we, we bring our undefended, our undefended hearts. Uh, we don't have an agenda. We don't want to fix things. We're not trying to protect ourselves, uh, take things personally. Um, we're not afraid of being hurt. I mean, sometimes people say pretty rude things, you know. Um, but with uh, without attachments to self doesn't really hurt <laughs> doesn't really hurt and so um, and also we come to people with this clear vision that you know this isn't about um, me and you it's about us it's about us we're all in this together right we all have these bodies we all have these hearts and um, 
So it's, it's, and people really feel that, that it's, it's us, it's not me and you. Um, and so then the other thing I would say is that in Buddhism, we have what we call the sublime abidings, the Brahma-viharas. And in this work that I do, um, and it, these are um, inner qualities, and so this is really, as I um, visit people and uh, care for them spiritually, this is the space that I work in. You know, um, it's compassion, loving-kindness, um, empathetic joy, and equanimity, staying steady. And so for me, I mean, this is, this is a huge benefit for me, you know. Um, I, I think I take away, working in that space and what I take away is, is um, so much greater than, you know, what people perceive that I'm giving. So that's, that's what I really love about this work. Um, so that poem, Falling, Falling Endlessly, um, that really resonates with me because really when you have the view of the reality of life and what you want for yourself, really they're, um, they're, we're falling, falling with really nothing, nothing solid or permanent to hold on to. But the Buddha brought us this practice so that we may be falling, but we, we can have this internal steadiness, this inner state of freedom, um, this uh, deep uh, feeling of peace and contentment even as we fall. So... Thank you for letting me share about my work. And I'm really happy to see that so many people are here and setting foot on the path. Breakout session. Again, we'll break into groups of four, and maybe you can choose different people this time. Um, Or not. (laughs) <laughs> whatever is your preference. And um, so, and maybe um, each person this time take, uh, take about five minutes or less, but about five minutes. Um, and uh, the questions to uh, consider, what are some of the ways you've reacted to the pain in your life And what was the underlying view? What are some of the ways you've reacted to the pain in your life? And what was the underlying view? Okay. So why don't you form groups? And... Is this the one that we had before? Or is it? Oh, she's, oh, Bruni has one too. Okay. Okay, so um, who would like to share from their group? Um, 
Any particular things that stood out or questions or anything like that? I think that um, the one of the, the main things was um, there's a lot of different types of pain. There's big pain, little pain. But there was difficulty in determining what the what is the view? What's the underlying view? Determining that's difficult. Okay. Maybe the underlying view is that this shouldn't be. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I found in our group that no matter what the pain was, that the process of um, paying attention in that moment to whatever it is was still um, the path for clear seeing of that pain, whether that be physical pain or mental pain or pain of others. Um, all of it was, uh, I heard from everybody else in my group, well, if you're there with that pain, then that is when you get to see. One of our underlying views was we want what we want, and we want what we like, and we want what's pleasant. When I was thinking about my underlying uh, uh, painful experience and the underlying views, um, I took the, um, the exercise to be a specific event, not general. The, the group um, shared more of a general view of pain and underlying views. And then we ran out of time, so I didn't get to really explore what I was thinking, and I'm sort of doing that now. Cause, mm. um, so I was thinking about an event when I was 14, and we're sharing these experiences here 50 years later. Um, and I don't know, I, I couldn't imagine I mean, I can imagine. That's all I can do. I can exactly imagine the underlying views that I had. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the problem with underlying views. They're invisible because we formed them over so long. And some of them are formed, I think, before we even have language to, 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 to frame them with so that the views we have are nonverbal and they live in our body. And then language comes later and explains them and sorts them out and our mind categorizes them and stuff. So I don't know where this thinking I have is leading, but I'll end it there. <laughs> <laughs>
one of the themes that came up in our group was um, self. Whenever that enters the picture, there's suffering <laughs> or a disconnection from another person. Uh, I'm the only one with this pain. Seems to be pretty universal. Um, and also judgment. Adding the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, eleventeenth arrow. <laughs> and if you can see that, that takes a lot of it. You get a glimpse of freedom. That's really good news. One theme that came up in our group was uh, if it's a very big, painful experience, uh, we talked about loss of parents, being with the parent, taking care of them, or having a member of your extended family has committed a very violent, exploitive crime, can you see the person and talk to them, that kind of thing. Um, several people felt that they could go into that situation and open their heart. I mean, something that big, just you just do it. But um, if it's day-to-day, -day, there's more the feeling of drawing back from it. Yeah, losing those, um, losing loved ones, yeah. Uh, the Buddha called that pain being born from those who are dear. Anyone else? Okay, so... Um, wait. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, I had a question for you, actually, with your compassionate work. Um, what happens it, when you're sitting with someone who who's suffering from the arrows on top of what's happened? So, oh, we'll never... You know, my son's in terrible... Uh, accident, he may not survive, H how can I possibly live my life, G how can I possibly go on, everything will be different, all oh, the suffering, 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 and um, just kind of curious, how, how do you work with all the suffering, which they believe sincerely? Mm. Yes, they do. Um, well, you know, we do a lot of listening, and sometimes people talk and talk and they kind of talk their way to some understanding of what's happening um, and can let go of some of the suffering and just be with the pain. But, um, you know, some people just never clearly see what's happening. And so then... Um, Basically, it becomes uh, a time to just, uh, I call it, well, we call it, actually, Buddhist emotional intelligence. Just, um, you know, to uh, encourage them to express whatever it is they're feeling here and now. And that's one thing that I try to do a lot, is to bring people out of the stories of their heads, in their heads, and have them be right here and now. Yeah.
Um, it seemed like in our group a theme that came up um, was this idea of fairness or the way things should be. And if they just were how they should be or if we all did the right thing, it would just work. <laughs> and, and it should be that way. And it's just interesting how it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You see the suffering in that. <laughs> That's the resistance. Yes, if only everybody did it my way or saw it my way. <laughs> yeah, that would be. <laughs> open this up to any questions on the subject. You're going to be having working with this for a month. Right? You've got the pointer. If you don't, we'll straighten it out if we sent the wrong thing. But you've got the pointer to the weekly exercises on you got the pointer hopefully to the weekly exercises for reflection on the subject for the next month. So it's a rich, rich subject to reflect on for in the ways that Gil suggested in those things for the month. So, and then you'll have, if you're in the mentoring program, you'll have a chance to discuss it. And um, I'd really like to encourage, I don't know how to do this formally, but I would really like to encourage you to meet each other in the course of this year and have a phone conversation or something in the course of the month, you know, about how it's going. So I think we'll, right now, we'll just leave this casually. If you know somebody here, or if you'd like to meet somebody here, just exchange phone numbers and try to arrange a time to just have a short check-in during the month about how it's going. It's a way to meet each other, a different person every month. We won't arrange year-long buddies. That tends to not work out so well, but <laughs> just have a, ha, you know, meet somebody new every month and have a little conversation about it. And so for now, we'll just ha have people, you might just, you know, at the end here, just ask somebody if they would want to have a conversation during the month. And um, there's been some requests around carpooling, possibly, and so forth. So um, I, I'm considering making uh, the email list for this group available to the group. So uh, what I would like you to do is, if you object to that, to email me or email the Gill's assistant address if you don't want your name to be included on the email address. It'll just be an email list that will be given to the group and um, basically the same group that's getting the emailings every month. And please respect that. Don't pass it on to anybody. Don't do anything else with it besides use it for purposes like arranging to talk to your buddies. Yes. I think I will try to include on the list where people live so that you don't do that. So I would ask you not to email the whole group. If I do that, then you can just email the Mountain View people, for example. So. They supposedly came out in one that we got a few days ago that said that there's this meeting. You didn't get it? You didn't get it? Okay, it's not attached. Okay, there. you should all just bookmark. Have you all found the Eightfold Path?
page in Audio Dharma. It's Gil's recordings, not these sessions. We are still working on where these sessions are going to be available. But there's a series of recordings of talks that Gil gave a couple years ago on each of the path factors. And there's PDFs that go with each one of them that contains a little write-up by Gil and the weekly assignments. And that's really all you need. And then you will also be getting a pointer to that and a reminder of the meeting every month and every week a reminder of what that week's reflections are. But you have it all already if you can find that one web page on Audio Dharma. I'm not. We just thought we'd save a tree or, or distribute the printing. So if you have a problem with that, you can let me know afterwards. But... Uh, I wish I had brought that with me, the web address for that one page, because that one page is all you need. You go into audio, you know where Audio Dharma is? Go into Audio Dharma, and in the series talks along the side, there's one called Eightfold Path. Click on that. That's the page that has everything you need for the whole year on it. Right there. And the emails are really just over and over again reminding you where to look on that page. Okay? Yes. I have no opinion on that. I think it's good to I think it's good to um understand the factor before you get too far into the reflections. I mean the the reflections will go better if you know a little more about it. So I would either come to this session or listen to Gill's talk toward the beginning. Read Gill's one or two page handout, which is always excellent, and then listen to his talk. Maybe mid month you'd listen to his talk as a refresher if you came to this talk, you know, or whatever you want. But understand kind of what you're doing at first and then work with it throughout the month. Mm-hmm. Yes? Okay, I'll write you down. I'll write you down. Test, test, yeah. If you have that email, that Audio Dharma page, you aren't missing anything except reminders by this email, but it's nice to get the reminders. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Is, is there so, anything else that might be that's not on that page? Well, if and there's the something we have nice. to say to you, we would use that list. So it's right. good to get on that mailing list and to get the address for it. You might look in your spam. I'm not sure where it's coming from. I'm not sure if it's got its own email address like Eightfold Path or Gill's Assistant. I'm, I'm not sure where it's coming from. I'll try to have all those answers by um, next time. MailChimp. Well, it does come from MailChimp, but is that the return address? That wouldn't we, Eightfold Path, I think. It says Eightfold Path. Okay. It sh- because we have to give them a mailing a mailing address, so it should be coming. You think it's called Eightfold Path? Okay. 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 No, don't don't write to that unless you need to. That's being monitored by various people, and it's kind of indirect to get that. Well, you can, but I mean, I mean. Well, okay. If you need to contact us, that probably is the best place. Yes, Gil's assistant. Sorry. Do do write to that. We'll take care of it. Eightfold path. 
That'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. Apologies. This thing is being organized by a committee, as you can tell. <laughs> it's kind of working like those things work. So we are a committee of volunteers, half of whom are away on retreat for three months. So we are trying to get it together. Thank you for your patience. <laughs>